This is Mormon Awakenings. Please email me at mormonawakenings at gmail.com. When I was a boy in my ward, whenever it was temple trip time, we would pack into a van or several vans, the big Ford Chateau vans, actually, or the big GMC vans. Those were the real vans, weren't they? None of this minivan stuff when I was a boy. Anyways, we'd pack into a series of these vans, you know, the big vans that big Mormon families would have, and then we would caravan down to Washington, D.C., because that was where the closest temple was to where I grew up in Michigan. Washington, D.C., it was about an 11-hour drive. So we drive down there, and one year in particular, we spent all the time in the van gambling, playing games of chance, poker, blackjack, guts, that's that's what we did. And we didn't think anything of it. We just, you know, that was, we had to pass the time somehow. So we, we gambled. Everybody brought a sack full of coins. We played nickel ante or dime ante games, card games. And on this one particular trip, I dominated, absolutely dominated. In fact, I took most of Scott Crowley's spending money for the entire temple trip. I kept winning and winning. I was particularly good at a game called Guts. I don't know if you've ever played Guts. Guts is a two-card game. It's kind of like playing two-card poker, except you get two cards, that's it. And then if you have a pair, the, the best hand you can have is a pair of aces, and then a pair of kings, and all the way down, and then just high card after that wins. And I kept drawing pairs and high pairs, and I just kept winning game after game after game. And by the time we got to Washington, D.C., I was up like $25, which, you know, to a 15-year-old kid during the 80s when I grew up, that was, you know, that was real money. And I felt so clever. I was so proud of myself. I thought of myself as such a great card player. Of course, it was just pure luck. I mean, there's a little bit of bluffing that goes into guts, but for the most part, it's just luck. You either get good cards or you don't, and the guy who is lucky enough to get the good cards wins all the money, and I was that guy on the trip down. I learned this lesson on the ride home, because on the ride home, back to Michigan after the temple trip, we played cards the entire way again, and I lost almost all of the money that I had won on the ride down. Random chance works that way. It can favor you for a while and then turn against you and then favor you. And over time, random chance balances out. And you end up winning about as much as you end up losing when you're playing games of pure random chance, which is really what we were doing. We were really playing just pure games of chance. None of us were smart enough to be clever poker players. Maybe some of us were, but, but, but not at that age in those vans. And so making a good choice, hand-to-hand-to-hand, really didn't matter much. You either got good cards or you didn't. If you had bad cards, there was really no good choice that you could make. You had bad cards. I guess you could make a relatively good choice. You could fold, but you got to pay ante every round. And so you're constantly losing, 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 losing. Whereas if you get good cards, well, it's easy to make the good choice. You got the good cards. You drew the pair. We're taught, of course, in life to make good choices. But how good of a choice can you make when all of your choices are bad? Or can you really make bad choices when all the choices before you are good? 
I'm reminded of a experience I had teaching primary, which I did for six years in my ward. There's a young boy who was on the autistic spectrum. Of the six years that I taught primary, I taught his class four of those six years. Joseph, many of you remember him from a previous episode in which I spoke about Joseph. Well, Joseph loved to give the opening prayer. And one year in our class, there was a girl named Lily, and Lily and Joseph did not get along at all. Lily would fight with Joseph, and Joseph would get peeved by Lily because she wouldn't keep the rules, and they were always at odds. And one Sunday, Joseph asked if he could give the opening prayer. That was not uncommon for Joseph. He was an eager prayer, as you might imagine. So Joseph asked to give the opening prayer, and of course, that made it easy for me. So yes, Joseph, why don't you say the opening prayer? And in the opening prayer, his prayer was all about Lily, specifically that Lily would make good choices. Please bless Lily that she'll make good choices. Please bless her that she'll choose what's right, choose to be kind, Bless her to stop breaking the commandments. Bless her that she'll make... I mean, that was the theme of the prayer. Amen at the end of the prayer. And it was all I could do to keep from laughing during this prayer. It was really quite amusing. This little eight-year-old boy praying in front of his classmate that she could be helped to make good choices. But of course, Lily and Joseph and me as their teacher and you as a listener, any of us, can only choose from that which is in front of us. There's a limited number of choices. We can't make any choice. There are only a limited number of options at any given time. And sometimes that set of choices, that menu that's before us, everything on the menu is bad. So you really can't make a good choice because good choices are not before you. Some people don't believe this. So let me explain what I mean. If you're trapped inside a concentration camp, I know it's an extreme example, but indulge me. If you're trapped inside a concentration camp about to be exterminated, there are only a few choices available to you, none of them good. So the idea of making a good choice in that circumstance, well, there really aren't any good choices on one level because some circumstances, the choice is is merely to accept your fate with dignity or accept your fate reluctantly, or to resist your fate and be dragged kicking and screaming towards it inexorably. Life feels like that sometimes. We want to make good choices. We want to produce good. We want progress. We want happiness. But there are no good choices, so it seems, in front of us. We've been dealt a bad hand. There's no way to win back our ante or the bets we've placed. There's no good choice. I first confronted this difficulty, this type of situation while a missionary in Hong Kong. I found being a missionary quite difficult, as most missionaries do. I don't think I was unusual in that regard. It's, it's an odd lifestyle, odd for anyone, but particularly for a 19-year-old. I found the discipline hard. I found the, the rigor hard. I found the language hard. I found the religiosity that permeated every single moment of every single day, well, difficult. One day I was on a switch with one of the ZLs in my mission. A ZL is a senior missionary leader, a zone leader. It was someone that I didn't know all that well. And so that caused me a little bit of anxiety. Anyways, we spent the day together 
And as the day progressed, we began chatting and sharing more about our lives and our experiences. And we were quite frank about our mission experience. And I shared with this zeal that, you know, I, it was difficult from time to time. I found it hard to, to do this monk-like thing that I was doing at age 19. And he said, yeah, it's, it's hard. He said, but you know, if you're about to walk across a field full of cow pies, you can tiptoe through the cow pies and try to not get any cow pie on your wingtip shoes. Or you can just say, to heck with it, and just run through the field of cow pies and try to hit every single one and smash your foot into each pie and, you know, have a laugh about it. And it was the first time in my life when I realized, even when there are no good choices on one level, there's always a good choice on another. And how different life is when, stuck in the middle of the field of cow pies, you're able to laugh and play and squash and frolic in the cow pies. How does that happen? Well, first of all, you simply accept there's no way around the field of cow pies. Secondly, you just start to think differently about them. Because what is a cow pie after all? A cow pie, of course, is cow manure. And manure is what comes out of the hole at the back end of the cow. But cow manure is really just ground up grass. You know, the cow digestive tract is only about 10% efficient, which means 90% of the stuff that goes through the cow's digestive tract doesn't get broken down or processed. So the cow pie, the majority of the cow pie is unprocessed grass or corn or whatever they were eating. That's it. The other 10% is processed grass and corn, the nutrients of which are absorbed by the cow, and that which isn't absorbed is sent out. And we think of that as a very disgusting, vile product, that, you know, cow manure or human manure. We think of that as being very, very gross because it's, it's odiferous and it's a gross color and texture and nobody wants to eat it. But what they do on cattle farms or what they used to do, I actually don't know if this is legal anymore, but what they used to do is they used to take all the cow pies, sterilize it because it was 90% grass still, and then recirculate it back into the feeding troughs. And when you're armed with that knowledge, you can look at the very pie that you're trying to avoid as different than when you thought during the period when you were really trying to avoid it and judging it as something so horrible. So, of course, the second step after you've gone through the first step of acceptance, the second step, step is to think of, or even better, to realize that the experience, and in this case, the cow pie, is not what you thought it was. It can be seen through a different lens, experienced differently. And there's something nice, more than nice, something transformative about taking those two simple steps to anything you encounter in life. I've had experiences applying these two steps. Acceptance of what is being the first step. Acceptance of the circumstances you are in and the limited choices you may have. That's step one. And then step two, looking at those choices or those realities through a different lens. 
I'll tell you about an experience to which I applied these lessons that on the surface seems like a very simple experience, and then I'll tell you about a more profound one later. The first experience is this. The day after spending time with my ZL, the very next day of my mission, at the end of the day, I made this slow trek up to the top of the hill to our apartment and then walked up the four flights of stairs to our unit. It was a long trek that I really didn't like making while I lived at this apartment because it was tiring even when you weren't tired. And at the end of long days, schlepping around town, being rejected by Buddhists and atheists, you know, the last thing you want to do, at least the last thing I want to do on my mission was schlep up this steep hill and then walk up a bunch of stairs to my apartment. And the reason I didn't want to do that is because it hurt my legs. I was tired. But I noticed the day after spending time with this ZL, as I walked up that hill, that instead of hating the pain that I felt in my thighs and my calves and my hips as I walked up this hill, I just noticed it and accepted it. This was going to be tiring. This was going to cause me pain. And the pain simply was. And then I began to have a very different experience with the pain. I began to see the pain, perceive the pain through different lens. It just was more like a sensation. It just kind of was. It was just there. And instead of trying to avoid it and, and feeling horrible that it was there and anxiety about it, it just kind of wasn't. And then I sort of felt it with each step. And then, I don't know, I realized I was getting a little stronger walking up this hill. And I began from that moment on to look at the nightly schlep up the hill and up the stairs as sort of a, an experience with the physical sensation and a way to train to train my mind and my body and my perspective. I didn't realize I was doing it at the time. At the time, all I could think about was running through a field of cow pies in my wingtips and not worrying about whether I got covered with the, with the manure. But remembering that little lesson changed my perspective. And even though I wasn't aware that I was exercising these two steps or practicing these two steps, acceptance and then looking at it through a different lens. Accepting what is and then looking at what is through a different lens. That's, in fact, what I was doing. Now, that's a simple thing. Seems like a simple thing. But it was a great lesson. I could apply it to other times when I would train my body physically. Strength training or endurance training. I could apply it to jobs that I had that were not great or classes that I had that were not that interesting. Roommates that weren't that friendly now, I wasn't awesome at it. There were a lot of times where I relapsed and went unconscious and wasn't aware of it, couldn't remember the steps, got obsessed with the misery of all things, just saw my bad choices as simply that, bad choices, limited. And, and just as an aside, you don't need to apply these steps if, you can, if one of the choices that you have is to get out of a miserable situation. If that's one of the choices before you, then, then get out of the miserable situation, okay? This, this doesn't mean stay in a situation. It, this doesn't mean you should be a, a masochist. If, if one of the choices before you is to leave misery, then leave misery. But, but often that's not, that's not one of the, the multiple choice items before us. And in those sort of circumstances, it does help to accept and then look at it differently. My own father demonstrated how incredibly soothing and efficacious this approach to life can be, particularly when the choices in front of you are, are limited. 
my younger brother, a little more than four years younger than I am, was born with Down syndrome. I have no recollection of my parents bringing him home from the hospital, none at all. And so I just grew up in a home where my brother had Down syndrome. That, that just was what it was. There was no adjustment period for me. But for my father and my mother, there was. Because they, like all young parents, had hoped that my younger brother, like the rest of their children, would be born healthy, complete, that he would one day become independent, marry, have his own children, move on, that they could raise a productive member of society. Well, once they were informed that he had Down syndrome, about three hours after he was born, by the way, that changed forever for them. Their lives were never the same. And the choices that they faced, well, they didn't seem like good ones. The first choice that they had to make was whether or not to keep this child or to institutionalize the child because he was born right at the tail end of a period where, you know, doctors and psychologists would recommend institutionalizing children with intellectual handicaps. The first choice that they had to make was to raise that child, which they did. After that, one of the big choices that they had and confronted almost daily was, how can we be happy doing this? How can we get over our mourning? How can we find peace? My room was just down the hallway from my parents' room, and I would often hear them at night talking about things. And when the subject of my younger brother came up, it was often, well, we're going to play the cards that we've been dealt. These are the cards that we've been dealt. And my father, frankly, was better at it than my mother, at least at first. He was happy and lighthearted and even made jokes about it. And she came around too. And over time, they began to see my younger brother as a great blessing for the rest of their kids and for their family. And I have no idea if, in fact, that's true. But that's how they dealt with it. That's how they chose to see it. That was the lens that they looked through what was for them, and it made all the difference in the world. And so while their choices on one level were quite limited, their choices on a higher level were, well, they had nothing but good choices, and they made those good choices. And it affected their perspective on everything, which also affected our perspective. When I say our, I mean my other siblings and my own perspective on, frankly, just about anything. Very little in my house growing up was a big deal. And what I mean by that is very little was all that important. A few things were, but the car you drove, how you appeared in public, your status, none of that stuff was a big deal at all. What mattered was that we were together, that we laughed, that we learned how to give each other space, that we didn't really judge each other. I didn't realize it at the time. Now that I've learned how many people have grown up, I realize that that was a, something unique about how I grew up. My parents' decision to accept and care for my younger brother and to be happy about it changed how they treated all of us, changed how we all treated each other. For the good, by the way. And that's one of the final takeaways. After accepting, after looking at something through a different lens... Even if you feel like you might be deceiving yourself, after doing all that, you do, in fact, change circumstances. You change outcomes for real. Because the the effects and the experiences that we had because 
of the way my father first and then my mother chose to view this experience of their own, well, those effects were real. And the whole thing becomes very metaphysical, doesn't it? Almost circular and metaphysical at the same time. It makes you ask questions like, what causes what? Do the circumstances cause your mood? Do the circumstances cause your experience? Or does your internal experience, does your preemptively thinking a certain way about it, cause the circumstance? What causes what? And I'm not here to give a definitive answer on that in every single circumstance that one can think of, but I can say definitively, your acceptance and the lens at which you look at things changes your reality. Not just how you think about it, not just how you think you're experiencing it. It changes your circumstances. It's quantum. And the thoughts that you use to process the fields of cow manure that are in front of you, that you must cross, change that circumstance. And it seems like magic, and at one level it sort of is. But this is what Jesus meant when he said, If you believe, O ye of little faith, pray as if things are already. This is what I think he was alluding to. For a great many of our experiences, particularly the difficult ones, the thoughts, the acceptance, And the lens at which you look at it comes first and must, and that affects the ultimate circumstance, the factual circumstance, the manifested circumstance. How very interesting. On the night of his trial in the Sanhedrin, Christ was first greeted by Judas with a kiss on the cheek, a customary greeting in ancient Jerusalem, but also a sign that Judas was giving to the centurions that accompanied him, identifying which of the disciples was the man known as Jesus. That's how Judas conveyed to the centurions who they should capture and drag to the Sanhedrin for the trial. Whoever Judas would kiss on the cheek, that was Jesus. And once Judas greeted Jesus with a kiss, the centurion stepped in and grabbed him. And Peter, you remember, reached over to one of the centurions, grabbed his sword, and chopped off that centurion's ear. And you'd think, you know, Jesus would say, hey, nice job, Peter. Let's split. Let's get out of here and run away. I mean, that's why Peter did it. And I suspect there was enough commotion where had they really wanted to get away, they, well, they could have at least made a run for it. And they might have gotten away. We don't know, of course, because that's not what happened. But instead, what happened is Jesus picked up the ear from the centurion that Peter had just sliced off. That's kind of gross. There's this movie I saw where, I shouldn't watch this scene, but there's a, there's, a, there's a movie that I saw where this guy is being interrogated and the interrogator slices off his ear. It's gross. It's, you know, there's just this big red round mark on his head. and the ear. So, the, but, so that's what's going on with the centurion. There's just this, this guy with no ear and Jesus picks up the ear and reattaches it. Heals the centurion. So clearly there's a difference in the level of acceptance between Peter and Jesus. That kind of is the understatement of the year. And the lens at which they were looking at the facts, at the limited choices that were before them, well, that was quite different too. Jesus went with the centurions, and he didn't resist. He accepted. And as the trial that night before the Sanhedrin 
progressed, he accepted. And as he was taken to Pilate, he accepted. And ultimately to his death, he accepted and looked at it through the right lens, a constructive lens. And how do we know this? Well, one way that we know this is right before he passed away, Jesus looked down at at more of these centurions and asked that they be forgiven because they knew not what they were doing. And Christ's perspective, the lens at which he viewed the entire series of events, changed the outcome. And some people will say, well, no, it didn't. He still was executed, and that's true. But, you know, the end of the story is he's resurrected. And that's the miracle of the story. And that's the lesson. And that's why the story's told generation after generation after generation and has been for 2,000 years. Ultimate outcomes, manifested circumstances change through one's acceptance and through the lens that one looks upon the choices that one must face. There's nothing easy about any of this. And yet, at the same time, it's the easiest thing you can do. Accept and then change your perspective. It's so easy and simple that we can't accept it. Until, of course, we're in a situation when there's no alternative. Until we're in a circumstance where that's all there is for us to choose from. Until we're in a circumstance where it's insanity and misery or acceptance and a new perspective. Which is why those type of experiences come to us to teach us the lesson for the first time or to remind us of the lesson again that belief and attitude produced the circumstance and not the other way around. Well, I've gone on far too long. I hope you found something interesting here today. Please do email me at mormonawakenings at gmail.com. Until next time.